0: You've heard me talk about Morning Kick, used by former karate champion Chuck Norris. It's a daily drink from Roundhouse Provisions that combines ultra-potent greens like spirulina and kale with probiotics, prebiotics, collagen, and even ashwagandha. Just mix with water, stir, and enjoy. Unlike other green drinks out there, this one tastes similar to strawberry lemonade, and I enjoy it. I know I don't eat as many vegetables as I should, but Morning Kick has helped me make up for that, and I feel great. I have more energy and better digestion. It's an easy part of my morning routine. My wife started taking it as well. Go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris for up to 44% off your regular priced order. Plus, every purchase is backed by a 90-day money-back guarantee. So if you want to experience smoother digestion, a boost of energy, and just an overall healthier body, then go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris today. Welcome everyone to another edition of the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris. As always, I have uh, two friends with me today. I have Ben Crenshaw, who is a PhD candidate at Hillsdale College. How are you doing, Ben?
1: I'm doing good, John. How are you?
0: Good. And uh, I got Tymon Klein, who is the editor-in-chief at American Reformer. How are you doing, Tymon?
2: Good, John. Thanks for having us on.
0: Good. Well, I'm so glad that you joined me. Um, We talked about this, I want to say, a week or two ago. And... The, the whole idea for this series on liberalism, classical liberalism, neoliberalism, uh, and as they as it pertains to wokeness and social justice and Christian nationalism and, and all these other isms and, and things is really, it seems to me like in the both political and the Christian world, there is a big misunderstanding. There, there, it seems like people are talking past each other, even today on Twitter uh, right now. As we speak, there's people that I, I think are talking people I like both talking past each other, and there's been some terms slung around out there. Boomercon's one of them that I've heard some people use to to describe uh, older people who don't understand exactly what's going on. And of course, there's there's all kinds of um, all kinds of terms and and attempts to try to understand this disconnect. But I, I've kind of come to the conclusion, and I'd love to hear what you guys think of this that. The main disagreements right now, whether that's like the G3 Christian nationalist controversy um, or other controversies, isn't so much pedo baptism or, you know, eschatology or, or some of the things that get blamed for these things. I think there's something actually much bigger going on. And that is, we're in a moment in history where we're, we are at the end of an era. And most of us don't probably even realize we're living at the end of an era, but the assumptions of the liberal order that we've lived under are starting to be questioned and they're crumbling. And as a result, people who are loyal to that liberal order, even without knowing that they are, or at least aspects of it, are defensive of it against people who are openly questioning and trying to bring about something new. Sometimes this gets called post-liberalism, but, but many of these people are trying to go back to things that are pre-liberal. Um, or even er- earlier iterations of liberalism, for example. So um, I'd love to get your take on this. Maybe, Ben, you first. Uh, I mean, do you see this as some of the the main controversy, that, like broadly speaking, in both evangelicalism and in, in the political world?
1: Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, we could say, quote unquote, liberalism, um, maybe um, yeah, liberal internationalism since fall of the Soviet Union and communism in 89 and 90, um, that kind of American-led international hegemony has just been something we all grew up with, at least those of us in the millennial generation. And unless you were specifically studying it, or you knew what had come before, you just absorbed um, its basic principles, its ways of functioning, its outlook, its prognosis for the future, your, you know, your basic uh, understanding of conservatism was some kind of a Reagan revolution and Thatcher and England, and then, you know, Bush one and Bush two and your compassionate conservatism. And that was, that's what conservatism was. That's what it meant to be um, an evangelical, a Christian in America, your moral majority in the eighties and nineties. Um, and that was kind of your, um, your horizon. That's pretty much what you grew up with. That's what you accepted and all that's blowing apart at the seams. And so it, if that's all you have uh, and you don't have an an understanding of America in previous decades, let alone previous centuries or going back to entire different epochs in Western and uh, you know, Greek and Roman history, then uh, you're going to, you're going to be you're going to be lost and kind of lashing out as the, the kind of tectonic plates shift underneath you. So I do think that's a lot of what's going on here and just the inability to conceive of a different way of life, socially, politically, especially with the role of religion and politics in the state outside of this, um, you know, even this, the past 30 years, basically, in, in its political uh, principles, a way of operation. So I, I certainly think that's there's a huge amount of it.
0: Uh, Tymon, I grew up with a Rush Baby, right? My parents listened to Rush Limbaugh, <laughs> and then Sean Hannity would come on, of course. And I always knew we were to the right of them as far as, like, free market principles weren't enough for a society's morality and and things like that, but we appreciated them. And I'm realizing now, um, how ill suited some of the framing that they had That, that may have even been better suited for an earlier time, but how ill suited some of the framing that they had is for our current time. And, um, so, I mean, do you relate to that? Did you grow up in that like many evangelical kids?
2: Yeah. I mean, actually we, me and my wife, we just moved, um, from, from the Northeast down to Florida recently, when we were packing stuff up, I actually found like the, I um, can't remember if it was CDs or cassettes, but it was Rush Revere, right? Like where he's oh, right. the story, yep. <laughs> it was, which was great. I obviously kept it. It's hilarious. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the story, especially for evangelicals. You know, my parents are conservative and, you know, would have voted for Bush and all that. I remember wearing my Bush Cheney shirt to high school, just to, you know, spite spite people, couldn't even vote, but, you know, I'm going to wear it. Um, and you just kind of knew where you stood, right? Like it was, um, in many ways, in some ways, some of the people, the thinkers we're going to get into that are, are lodging critiques of liberalism, um, that basic, you know, sort of um, situation, uh, situating yourself in contrast to something else, is not really changed for a lot of conservatives. It's just other substantive things have changed, so the alignment looks different. Um, but you knew where you stood, and it was pretty, you know, easy. You, um, you know, terms like liberty and freedom had some kind of content or meaning to you. People could just say them, you know, in stump speeches. We all knew what that meant. Um, in general, I think for a long time the idea was, well, you know, Democrats or Republicans, and Republicans, and again, you're thinking of things in purely almost electoral polit- political frame you know, they're, they're probably, they just have different ways of like trying to achieve the good of the country, right? Like they just agree on the means and the methods and like, right. you know, maybe some priorities. A lot of that is just totally exploded as has been talked about for various reasons and causes we'll get into. And, um, you know, those can all be debated. It's probably a multifaceted um, reason. And one of those has been pointed out is, you know, the collapse of this sort of rules-based international order that served, that was constructed in the post-war period to serve, to serve us. I mean, more or less, it's not, it's not the worst idea ever. Um, and for a long time it worked and we, we could rely upon that. So our expectations, uh, were framed by that our expectations for prosperity and for political trajectory. Um, we'll just go ahead and bring up Fukuyama since we'll do that a lot. I'm sure. Um, but all of our expectations were framed this way and it's, you know, it's a, it is a really a progressive outlook on history in general, because it's, it's going to be linear. It's, you know, going this way, very, um, you know, so so expectations were high. Those things, because of various failings um, internationally, have, have been chipped away at, and that may actually have started the whole cascade of of critiques of of liberalism. Really, is the, the collapse, the slow demise of uh, the international order, and we're we're continuing to see that. Right, it's 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 increasingly chaotic. Um, but now, I think the real turn and what's interested a lot of us is for this to really land domestically and for us to reassess these in a similar way, the expectations and the political imaginations of our polity on the ground. And I'm, you know, I'm reminded of, of George, speaking of the liberal international order, you know, George Kennan's ex telegram from whenever that was the forties, uh, you know, very early on before really the cold war started talking about, you know, the, the importance of domestic stability for your international policy. And if you don't shore that up, going to fail and of course that's borne itself out so we're now though just seeing um a lot of the domestic failing uh the same kind of order or or, you know rules-based order that we that formed our expectations politically domestically is also collapsing and that's through just general dysfunction that you know people have been complaining about since the bush era that's that's fine but i think it's it's also more importantly and this is where religion is coming back into it for evangelicals who for a long time dutifully followed the rule of keeping that in many ways outside of the substantive claims of their religion outside of the political sphere, even if they you know, were still a faithful witness and, and pursued certain good things. Um, and so the, the religious aspect has, has come back in as a um, thing that many of us and many people are arguing you know, is um, can't be detached from the domestic political order you know, is informing all these things, whether you want it to or not. And that's, that's been very disruptive to reconsider. Um, but it's, again, it's these atrophied kind of muscles um, that procedure, you know, sort of algorithmic life where it just ran itself allowed you to not exercise those muscles. And now because of various uh, disruptions, we're, we're kind of forced to do that again. Um, but it's equally disruptive to do that. It's very shocking to people. So.
0: Yeah, well Ben, you know, my my dad, I don't know if your dad's do this, but he'll he'll fondly remember when Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill would get <laughs> together in the White House and enjoy uh, you know whatever they enjoyed together. I don't know if they drank beer or you know, but they they really had some some Irish fellowship and they were across the the political divide obviously. And th- there's this questioning of like, man, wouldn't it be good, right? If we could go back to that in some way, if, if there was someone who was willing to extend to the other side, uh, this olive branch. Um, and then at the same time, I think there's this understanding that actually those are our enemies. And so th- there's this conf- conflict going on of, of remembering that in the past, but recent past, but also knowing that things aren't the same now. And, um, Tymon had mentioned post-liberal thinkers, uh, Ben, who is, who are we talking about? Because I don't think a lot of evangelicals are even aware that there is another way of doing politics or a a questioning of our political order. They, they, they probably feel similar. Like, can't we go, go back to tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan? Couldn't a Christian politician look like that um, and, and just maintain the order that we have.
1: So, you know, to, to answer that question, to go back to O'Neill and Reagan uh, you know, one of the strengths of America is that there has been, um, a kind of, uh, a legitimate opposition is what is technically termed in party politics. When you study party politics in America, there's a legitimate opposition in which the other side is considered legitimate by yourself, because usually you have some kind of shared end or some conception, um, a shared conception of where you're going. And the disagreement is about, the means to do so. Now, I would say even, even at the time of Reagan's regime that had broken down and really uh, you see a kind of um, a managerial and um, intelligence military takeover of American government and DC during Nixon's um, administration and his ouster because he challenged uh, the powers that be there. So, but the strength of American politics is that there has been quite a bit of back and forth, peaceful transfer of power between the two sides because each of them saw themselves as legitimate. Now, when we talk about post-liberalism, I mean, that's in many ways, that's kind of been the quote unquote liberal uh, way of doing things is that, you know, when the other side wins an election, supposedly this is the will of the people and you advocate office uh, and this makes for peaceful transfer of power and continued prosperity and each side gets a turn. Um, But of course, what the Democrats want now is they want a single party rule eternally, permanently, as they do in California. Um, And they want to enact that at the national stage. So it's not really about a legitimate opposition anymore, because the not only are the means of governing different, but the ends are different. So when the ends of the two parties are completely different, like one of them says, this is what marriage is and this is what the family is and this is the foundation of politics. And if your political order um, and your laws are destroying your foundations and you're going to have a collapsed civilization and the other side says, no, you know, the the sexual permissibility and promiscuity of the individual is uh, paramount above all. And you can, you know, have plural marriages and you can, you know, mutilate children for your own uh, sexual identity and so forth. You know, these are incompatible understandings of the good. And so what post-liberalism is saying is that we actually have the return of politics. So we're no longer in ter- en- en- enveloped in a single kind of uh, agreed upon uh, hermeneutic, political hermeneutic or a horizon or um, principles, but we actually have to return to the very foundation of the political order the very debate over about the goods or the ends that we're um, ordering and, and pursuing order toward or pursuing together. And this is what the post-liberals are doing. So somebody like uh, Patrick Deneen, Gladden Pappin, Adrian Vermeule, these guys, um, they, they kind of go by uh, Catholic integralists and, uh, you know, Tom could talk about integralism. Um, uh, but it, it's, it's a way of reconceiving politics of actually, the return of politics to America and to the West, and liberalism has attempted to try to tamp that down for a long time, because the return of politics fundamentally means the return of the friend-enemy distinction, and therefore the return of violence. Um, and at the end of the day, you have to be willing to conquer your enemies, and you can't—you um, know—you can't have an understanding of the good and a cooperative, harmonious relation with citizens and their civil magistrates uh, if you haven't first destroyed your enemies or at least conquered them or defended yourself from them. Um, and that's very threatening. And of course, what we'll get into in maybe future uh, podcasts is that a lot of the uh, liberal politics in the early modern era was about trying to overcome the threat of violence and to find a, a, a kind of a lowest common denominator um, uh, by which everybody could agree. Um, and so, and so this, this kind of common de- low common denominator has uh, held us together for a long time. And it's now fallen apart um, with these competing goods, these competing ends. And so these these post-liberal thinkers are saying, actually, we need to go back and we need to do politics from the very beginning. And that means questioning all the assumptions of liberalism, new ends, a new role for um, uh, you know religion and supernatural order and appeal to divine revelation um, a demotion of reason or a rethinking of kind of a rational um, politics and so forth. So, guys like uh, Patrick Dineen, um Yoram Hazoni, Charles Haywood, they all have different iterations. You mean Hazoni's more of a, a, a Burkean, he's um, Jewish, Israeli by ethnicity, and uh, Hayward kind of he's Eastern Orthodox and he has this, this uh, philosophy called foundationalism. I think, Timon, mean, you probably I've read that whole manifesto and know a little bit more about it. I think you did a podcast recently on it. Um, I haven't listened to that yet. I need to. Um, yes, you should. So, yeah these, you should. yeah, these these guys, they're trying to rethink um, politics as politics, not as this kind of procedural party um, negotiation or balancing of interests within a mm-hmm. fixed institutionalism.
0: Yeah, you know, time and, uh what Ben just said, I, I would add to that maybe – um, I don't know if you mentioned if you mentioned Reno, um, mm-hmm. Christopher Caldwell, Legutko. Uh, and then, of course, Stephen Wolf, I think, is even part of this. And I know, Time in at American mm-hmm. Reformer, I think you published a few pieces from Stephen Wolf, and I don't want the topic of the podcast to be Stephen. But th- this mm-hmm. is obviously broader than just integralists. Um, So maybe briefly, could you just walk us through a little bit? I don't know. We can't get to every single post-liberal or uh, I you know, questioning of the liberal order idea, but mm-hmm. um, what are some of the major ones? Because you have your Christian nationalism, you have your integralism, and then you have, you know, foundationalism, Ben just mentioned. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and, and Ben's totally right about the, you know, the, I think it's a great way to put it, if it's the return of politics proper, um, you know, if we think of, lib- and we'll continue to define liberalism, but if we think of it as, as in the post-war period, you know, essentially, an attempt at at a conflict mitigation, right? That's the entire goal, uh, as been said, to avoid violence, and to avoid violence. Um, you know, this you mentioned Reno. Reno is very good at 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 this part of the thesis. So this is this is one um, piece of the puzzle we can throw out um, on the board. Is you know Reno's book, *Return of the Strong Gods*. His whole um, you know shtick in that is these these strong loves, the things that drive commitment and yes, um, you know it, at some point can even lead to violence over those strong loves are things like family, you know we could say tribe, uh, broadly speaking, nation and religion right like these are the strong loves that drive people to action. And what liberalism on his in his thesis has done for you know 75 to 100 years whatever is is to, Diminish as much as possible the affection for those things because they're what can lead to violence. Based on the the assessment of what happened in the the violent twentieth century, right? And the idea was all the strong stuff, all the things that that uh, you know post liberals would now say are um, indispensable glues for society. Um, but the but the liberal project was to say those let's let's diminish the significance of those so that we diminish the likelihood of violence. And so Reno is just. A lot of it's observational, but uh, all of it a lot of it is also aspirational of saying actually, you can't have a coherent society without these strong loves, uh, which yes includes the threat of violence, but this is just because these loves are embedded in what it means to be human, and a good social order should you know be conducive to true anthropology so that's that's someone like Reno so Reno is you know i don't know if we have a good label for him, but he's pointing out some problems and uh, and talking you know challenging liberal assumptions. Um, You would have the integralist, which Ben already mentioned and and listed them. I I guess Chad Pecknold would be another one. I think that's that's all of them. Um, You know, they're ones that are wanting to in brief explicitly and and sort of boldly assert their Catholicism as the um, the key driving force for all other, um, you know, subordinate political uh, decision making assumptions, um, you know, goals. Um, so they're just explicitly political Catholics, right? That's what they'll say. And um, the adoption of integralism as a framework for that, an expression of that is really from 19th century popes who were at the time critiquing um, a lot of things in, in America. And that's where this term comes from. And some of the en- encyclicals you read, you know, lay that out. But the um, we could say this is from, you know, maybe someone like Pater Waldstein, who articulates integralism very well, um, you know, would you say that the key tenet for them is that politics can't be disconnected from the ends of life, and the ends of life of people includes a supernatural or spiritual end. Therefore, politics has to consider its relationship to religion, ideally the true religion, which for them is, is found in Rome, right? So that's integralism. Stephen Wolf, on the other hand, you know, we and um, to some extent myself, I mean, I've pl- played around with the term integralism and different things, but Stephen has a very clear, you know, project through his book, and what Stephen's doing is is not integralism, um, not only just because he's not Catholic, because integralism in many ways is just trying to recover uh, pre-modern ideas or assumptions about politics, but also because Stephen is, you know, he's explicitly trying to recover many um, priors of magisterial reformed thought, which I think is generally kind of classical um, political theory adjusted for, you know, ecclesiology as, as a Protestant. Um, but Stephen's also trying to so not only put religion front and center, Christian, you know, nationalist, um, and he's trying to do that within a historic American context. So he's wanting to recover the, some of their original understandings of the polity. Um, but at the same time, he's trying to think about, um, you know, these now very, you um, sticky topics that most people don't want to get into, such as what is the nature of a nation, right? Is is proposition nature, uh, nation, is that sufficient? You know, we used it to defeat communism. Can we, is it sufficient to hold everything together while it's fracturing? Um, you know, is ethnicity relevant to nationhood? You know, what do you think about immigration and assimilation on that same front? And so that's a, a problem that you don't see, you know, it doesn't have to be as tackled as much in a pre-modern period because a lot of this stuff is just is just kind of permanently settled at the time. Uh, but now these new questions have emerged that are pressing upon, um, America in the post as the post-war order breaks down. And so Stephen integrates some of those questions to his project and tackles them, um, and, and comes up with answers that, you know, no one's really liked, but, um, so those are those camps that you raised, um, all doing different things, um, all picking up on things started by Deneen, um what you know i'd say was one of the first intellectual volleys in this direction in 2018 um and then you know there's others that have come along so it's all kind of swirling around um they're they're different they're distinct but they're they're noticing some of the same problems and trying to address them from different vantage points
0: yeah very good um that's that's helpful and you know ben uh time and actually asked me a while back now it's probably a few months to do an article, which I still haven't written, but I need to on defining a nation biblically because I did a podcast on it. And uh, it occurred to me, I don't know if it was before or after the podcast, but certainly by the time Timon had uh, emailed me that this is not work that's being done by a lot of people. And the people who are even trying to approach these questions are getting canceled or, or at least uh, there's a lot of shade thrown their way. And I've been wondering about this, like, why? After living through 2020, which we all did, I think that most evangelical Christians who just, they want to open their Bible and they just want to see what does the Bible say, are on to the woke stuff, at least now. I mean, they've fallen on one side or the other. And if they fall on the other side, they're moving away from evangelicalism. The ones who are staying true um, have not gone down the 2020 woke path. But uh, I think it's, there's, in the, in the current fractures, something else is being revealed here. And maybe it's the answer to the question I had, why aren't people doing work on that that one question? There's others, but, you know, defining a nation or when is violence appropriate or, you know, I don't know, there's so many questions. So what what do you think the compromise is, even though we haven't defined it yet, but what, what do you see as far as church or Christian or evangelical compromise On liberalism. So, not the social justice of 2020, but on the liberalism maybe we all grew up with and didn't realize was a compromise?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, liberalism is certainly, um, you know, it focuses around the concept of liberty or freedom. And so, I think a lot of the compromise by, you know, a lot of evangelical Christians today is that a a kind of secular state in the 20th century, um, both in America domestically and internationally, has redefined what freedom is. And we might understand, you know, we have our particular biblical definition of of freedom or, you know, the kind of heavenly or eternal concept of of true freedom. Um, But in terms of national politics or the definition of a nation or of a people, um, the compromise is just having accepted what a kind of uh, liberal and global politics has told us freedom is and how it must function and act, act within um, American polity. And, uh, of course, this is, you know, you just see something like G3's reaction to blasphemy laws in early America. I mean, there's, there's like there's not even the ability, you don't even have the ability to read, uh, you know, early uh, blasphemy and speech and obscenity laws as being a legitimate aspect of the American polity and how it functioned in state law, um, because it's just so far outside their Overton window because they've been compromised um, in accepting this kind of pluralistic and debased concept of freedom. I mean, you, it's even hard for um, Christians to imagine that we could have a polity that say Turned the clock back on no fault divorce prior to 1970. Um, oh my gosh, like that would be, you know, in, encroaching on people's freedom. And so this, it really is almost, in a sense, an idolization of freedom. And I think, in terms of the post liberal um, thinkers like Deneen and uh, Charles Haywood, they both are really good. And even Hazoni is good at this at pointing out, and they all kind of tend to agree in terms of this, uh, this the central idea of. Um, Kind of what they call uh, autonomous uh, voluntarism. This idea that the, the absolute and foundational political unit of every uh, of kind of modern liberalism or the modern state is the individual. And anything that violates the autonomy and the rights and the liberty of the individual, uh, this is anathema. This is contrary to the American founding. This is contrary to the entire American way of life. This is contrary to what has made us prosperous. And I think so many evangelicals have bought into this, and it's just, it's impossible for them to break out of that mold and to conceive of an America, an American founding, a declaration, a constitution, state laws, and an entire way of life in the 18th, 17th, 18th, and 19th century, and even well into the 20th century that was different. And so in in many ways, I do think that this idolization of freedom, and of course for Baptists like G3 and others, um, you know, they have this paranoia that if we go back to 17th or 18th century politics, if we go back to the Puritans or some kind of European throne and altar thing, then before long, you know, they're going to be whipped. They're going to be dunked. uh, They're going to be driven out uh, by some kind of, uh, you know, religious establishment that's intolerant of Baptists who don't baptize their babies. Of course, I mean, all that's ridiculous, but it just shows that even they believe that they're very kind of, their, their their function as a Baptist Christian, their witness, everything they do as a Christian within this American polity is dependent upon this kind of late 20th century modern conception of liberty, of freedom, of libertas. So I do think that that's a huge part of the the compromise um, by evangelicals today. I'll just I'll leave it at that. I can go on. but
0: Yeah, that, that was excellent. Uh, you know, time. And it, if you go back and you just start tracing history western history from 1500 let's say you could even go back before that i guess but but middle ages to today i mean you're going to find that there's all sorts of things today we would not find acceptable that we have in stages done away with right we've uh religious wars of course are horrible things and the secular state is supposed to get rid of that and um of course arranged marriages and monarchies uh all also very evil um relate certain labor relationships uh, serfdom slavery these kinds of things all very very horrible and, and the list goes on and and you get into the 20th century and it seems like we're we're in a place now where we're trying to shed boundaries between nations like even borders right now and if you went to the southern border of the united states right now or the southern border of uh places like italy and france you're going to find hordes of migrants coming over, which apparently, you know, I've been told that using that phrase is is racist or something, but uh, whatever, like, you know, it, it's uh, I, I don't even know what to say about that because it's just like you either open your eyes or you don't. They're coming here at levels that are unsustainable, that this has never happened really before, uh, as far as I know, in the history of the world. Um, not like this on this level. So anyway, that Happening uh, as we speak seems to be one of uh, one of the the last pillars, I suppose, or or most recent pillars to fall to an international order um, of sorts. And and the idea seems to be that this is all going to make for peace and prosperity, and maybe a utopia of some kind if we can just um, base everything on, as Ben just said, the individual and what's in the individual's mind is the only thing that matters, not where they were born or their culture they're part of or, or any of those uh, other factors. Um, so, you know, that being said, um, when we, when we go back to liberalism, you have neoliberalism, you have, uh, progressivism, you have classical liberalism, you have all these different things that I think we can get confused of. I look at it, it, it this way. I don't know if you agree is the, these are different stages of shedding ex, ex, uh, the, the shared relationships that we've had with each other and, and these organic relationships that have developed over time, we're emancipating, uh, from those things, emancipating ourselves in stages. And so that, that's how I line up liberalism, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear from you kind of going from the present backwards, you know, what do you see as the different stages of liberalism?
2: Yeah, so I, I would um, I agree that I think that that's a useful useful framing for these stages. That um, even if people don't know where to put them on sort of a you know what a Venn diagram or a chart or something, um, you know phrases either in a pejorative way or or positive way, such as progressive, such as uh, neoliberal or neoconservative, you know we'll often get uh, thrown around at the same time. Um, and I and I agree that the you know we could um, use this as sort of stages of, as you said, the shedding of unchosen bonds, of natural boundaries, of natural distinctions, um, re- really of a, a previously for all the, you know, the chaos of really any period in, in human history, you know, were, were, unquestioned, um, restrictions on, on human activity, either collectively as a society, as a political unit, um, or individually, and that those two things also need to, um, inform one another, um, and you see this now in sort of a reverse order of as, as certain natural political boundaries, things that were taken as being natural and unavoidable, um, have been discarded or something we'll get into with the post-liberal critique is, or have they actually? Ha, ha, can you actually discard these things? Can you actually, I don't know, eradicate violence from a society? starting to not seem like you actually can. So therefore, it may not be the right, you know, political goal. Um, anyway, but as you at least ostensibly discard some of these restrictions, natural restrictions, or, or even prudential and convenient ones, we've gone a reverse order from, you know, the first, the, you, you, could, you could see easily the tra- trajectory of borders uh, to nations being Um, discarded because what the nation is is merely a construct right surely there's nothing really to it that doesn't spring it springs out of the ether Um, it's probably the work or the boundaries set up by you know rich predatory white men to suit themselves right so if you have that explanation it's no um, coincidence that you also have similar explanations being given for natural anthropological boundaries or restrictions that are givens, right? That maybe these can be altered, also by a liberatory mindset and the emancipation of ourselves through usually, you know, technology and, and, and advancements and these things. But um, so these are, are what post liberals would refer to, of course, as delusional um, sort of commitments that that liberalism has induced. It doesn't mean that, um, as we're going to, you know, want to get into in our genealogy of. Um, key thinkers um, from the past doesn't mean, of course, that they predicted that or that they wanted it. Um, But post-liberals chart a narrative that a lot of these things um, are unavoidable logical conclusions of ideas implanted in the political uh, consciousness, uh, you know, a couple centuries ago or so. Um, And so I do think, though, that that progression is is a helpful way to think about it, or that uh, those stages, as you said. So if you began with Um, And we can go into it in more detail. But if you begin with, you know, the sort of Enlightenment period, which the thinkers that Ben lists, that's where they all begin. Right. So so we can quibble over that or talk about it. But they'll uh, begin with this sort of 17th and 18th century as when the the um, cancer, you know, whatever that's metastasizing is introduced into Western political thought and emergent societies at the time. Um, and of course, as you, they would, you know, want to argue in some way. They all, they all do it in a different way. That um, the logic of those ideas unfolds and produces new ideas, new children, as time goes on in response to certain, you know, material conditions, industrial revolution, whatever you want to say, wars, you know, civil war. These these types of in America, these types of things, until you get to, you know, the next era. I think we'd have on our list is, you know, the, the early twentieth century. Right. Which is also responding to certain conditions in America, specifically at this point is when America is slowly inching, inching into having a more global effect in, in leadership. Right. Already diplomatically. And so what they start doing is now going to be reverse sort of, uh, you know, exported. Uh, that's that's become our main job in the, the uh, global American empire as it emerged. But so those ideas that are responsive in the progressive era that we might say to other conditions, but are building off of a foundation of liberalism lead to further emancipation, further uh, breaking of, of uh, you know, previously thought to be given boundaries. And we can, we can talk about some things, good, bad, you know, ugly, whatever, um, and some things that may have just been a necessity at the time for the sake of stability. But the key point in, in thinking like a progressive is... Um, Classical political ends such as homogeneity, peace, tranquility, justice; these things are not actually your political goals. So even if there's certain things that that do affect peace and stability for a time, that's not actually why they're being performed. It's really in the pursuit of you know further freedom, liberty, emancipation, as now understood in that era. Um, and then you know what we've already cited after the sort of progressive era would be. Um, you know, this sort of neoliberal stage that we're now either still living in or at the tail end of and coming into something else. Um, I guess you would say it's not like the prior stages are completely shred. We can just mark by certain events and ideological developments, a sort of escalation of, of, you know, what's what came before. So I think that uh, maybe that's a roundabout way of getting at the question. I do think that's a useful way to think about it. Um, because the logic of liberalism as we're speaking of it now actually demands a sort of progressive state stage, you know, segments of, 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 progression. Um, that's its goal. That's how itself is operating if you were to give it like a hive mind. Um, so I think that is, is a useful framing.
0: Hey everyone, just a quick word about Fox and Sons coffee before we continue the podcast. Many of you probably know that I'm more of a tea drinker myself, But my wife loves coffee. And when Stephen Fox reached out to me, he's a listener uh, to this podcast, about his product, I thought, if my wife likes it, then it's definitely gotta be good. Because she, well, let's put it this way. She calls me a barbecue snob because I'm really picky on what constitutes good barbecue. If that's true, then she's definitely a coffee snob because it's gotta be good for her. And let me tell you, um, Fox & Sons coffee doesn't stay around that long when it's in my house. So, this is the Tanzania Peabody. She loves this mix. And there's several mixes. If you go to their website, uh, it's uh, at foxandsons.com, foxandsons.com. And uh, while you're there, you can read about their story. It's actually, um, it's pretty heartwarming. Uh, the uh, Stephen, who is the founder of the company, talks about how, Sharing time with his dad over a cup of coffee meant so much to him growing up. And I know he's not alone in that. Many people have those experiences, and coffee just brings about those memories. Uh, It's a cherished tradition in many households. And so um, part of his company and what he wants to do is actually honoring the memory of his father. And so you can see here uh, there are several different mixes. There are six in this picture here. They have the Den Blend light decaffeinated I already showed you the Tanzania Peabody, uh, the Electric uh, Boogaloo, uh, Brazil Honey Prep, Den Blend Light, and Den Blend Dark. And the Brazil Honey Prep, I believe that is the one—see, again, I'm more of a tea guy, but my wife, she said, I have to taste it. And that's the one I think that she had me taste. And I I have to say, it it was pretty—as far as coffee goes— uh, it, it's pretty good. But uh, her judgment, I, I would trust a lot more than mine and she thinks it's great. So if you want to support a good Christian uh, business, a, a, a business that uh, is owned by a Christian who shares uh, your beliefs and values and, and you want to stop paying money to other companies that don't share those, then I would suggest going to Fox & Sons Coffee's uh, website, which is foxandsons.com, foxandsons.com, and during checkout, let him know we sent you. God bless. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. Um, Legutko, uh, in The Demon and Democracy. Yeah. He makes Very this good. point that when he left communism to the Western democratic world, there were so many similarities. And one of them was this advance of uh, society towards further enlightenment, emancipation, and ultimately a utopia of sorts. And, and so there's a certain... Um, eschatology. And and I'm not saying any of the Christian eschatological views. In fact, people who are share all those views or, 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 or don't share them, they all sometimes will buy into this if they're uh, loyal to the liberal order. And so um, I, I would, I, I think maybe a helpful place to go from here, Ben would be classical liberalism because some, some people still use this term Glenn Beck, even a few years ago, I remember was trying to get all the conservatives to start using that term instead of conservative. Uh, there, there's this understanding that classical liberalism is a good thing. That's what we had at, at the founding of our country. That's what the constitution is based upon. And then there's the post-war consensus, right? And I think for a lot of neoliberals, they think that these things are related, which I would agree. They are that, that, but they're, they're kind of the same thing there. There's an advancement maybe, but, um, but there are differences and, uh, I think it's helpful maybe to compare and contrast those things just so Christians who are trying to understand this stuff biblically have their bearings and they know, at least broadly speaking, what we're dealing with.
1: Yeah, those, that's a good way to contrast it. You know, if you read um, someone like Dineen, uh and the po- poison pill theory in which, you know, the kind of the problems of liberalism that we've inherited today, conquest of nature, autonomous individualism, the breakdown of all family and social bonds of high trust society and so forth um yeah that this stuff started back with with um Francis Bacon and Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and the Enlightenment and they they argue forcefully for that and there is an argument to be made there now of course classical liberals who think of the American founding as being primarily Lockean um you know they'll contest that and they'll say no no You have a classical liberal, limited state, and there's a whole philosophy here, and usually it involves a lot of rights language, Um, and I'll talk about that in a second, and then you have, uh, you know, your modern liberalism, and in between the two of these, you have the progressive uh, revolution in political science in America, beginning in the 1880s and going through the 1920s, such as, like, Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt and FDR and Herbert Crowley and uh, Goodnow, Frank Goodnow and... Uh, John Dewey and these guys, these um, both statesmen and philosophers who explicitly rejected the American founding and a kind of a Lockean version of American founding, the idea that uh, the mind is capable through reason of accessing universal and um, objective truths that can be applied to politics, that humans have uh, limits and that we need checks and balances, a separation of, um, of branches in government, and we need uh, mechanisms such as representation and a bicameral legislature an extended sphere and the ambition countering ambition in order to um, prevent any kind of coalescing of uh, political power in a single head, either in the executive branch, it's inside of a legislature, which is how a parliamentary system works is what Woodrow Wilson wanted, or some kind of um, delegation of executive and Uh, legislative power to an administrative or bureaucratic organization, which is how kind of a German um, Hegelian system would work. Um, The progressives tried all kinds of things to overcome and destroy the American founding and at least a lot of the mechanisms that were put in place and the political principles that they believed in. And that led to a kind of new vision, a new understanding of liberalism, and the thought of John Dewey, uh, which eventually emerged in the post-World War II era um, with a kind of scientific management and managerialism, uh, focus on technique. Um, yes, of course, the progressives introduced this idea of progress. Um, so a classical liberal will make all of these distinctions to say, well, what we have now is a perversion and a rejection of an earlier political uh, order. And I think that, that they, they do make good arguments there. The problem that Denine and others and Haywood and others would, would point out is that um, actually, if a, a Lockean interpretation of America itself is problematic and plants the seeds that then lead to some of the problems that we're dealing with today. So the whole idea of you know a rights discourse, well, how, what is the check? What's the control on rights? Who says you have these kinds of rights, but not these rights? Like you have a right to uh, you know, property, um, but do you have a right to education? Well, who, who decides? And of course, this is the classical political problem of who rules and how many and for whom. So who gets to decide these things? These, these um, you know, in, in the absence of a common religious, um, cultural, uh, and, and political inheritance, which is what you had at the time of the American founding, Um, You need some kind of political sovereignty and authority to make these kinds of decisions. And what you had basically with progressivism and liberalism, um, first liberalism and then uh, neoliberalism in the 20th century, was you had, um, you know, a new ruling class come up and say, we're going to redefine these ideas. Um, We're going to take the rights of property and we're going to redefine them. We're going to take the rights of speech and redefine them, or we're going to extend them, or we're going to add new rights, like uh, the right the, the right to be free from fear and want. Well, gosh, I mean, if you had the right to be free from want, you've, you have the right to everything. Um, and so they, uh, there is a good critique in terms of uh, classical liberals who um, kind of overemphasize rights. It's like, you know, you read someone like, say, John Goodman, at the goodman institute and his assessment of classical liberalism and the whole thing the entire political philosophy is constructed in terms of just rights positive rights versus negative rights substantive rights versus procedural rights rights that come from god they don't come from the state and there's no there's no other considerations it's like all of politics all of communal life you know constitution law everything comes down to rights language and rights analysis. And it's, there's no denying that the American founders understood, a, had a concept of natural rights, and they talked about that. But there are so many other elements that's missing. And this is really the problem with classical liberalism is it misses all these other elements of America. And uh, in doing so, it kind of loses all of the internal controls and the ability to check abuses of classical liberalism. So I do think there's a good critique there by the post-liberals.
0: I think one of the sticking points is that different uh, classical liberal philosophers, who, of course, in their time would not have seen themselves as classical liberalism, that wasn't really a a term, but, um, you know, enlightenment thinkers, we we should say, maybe they wanted to preserve elements of Christian civilization, most of them, if not, well, I don't want to say all, but, but certainly most of them, and especially John Locke, I would say, um, and Thomas Hobbes. But the, the thing is, like, if you look at Locke, Hobbes, and Rousseau, they all have something in common that you just pointed uh, at, I think, Ben. Um, and that is, the for Locke, the civil magistrate's role was the establishment uh, or the defense of life, liberty, property to ensure that no man was subjected to the will of any other man. Um, Hobbes believed that seeking peace and defending oneself against the claims of others were fundamental laws of nature, That legitimized the formation of the Leviathan state, and of course Rousseau wanted the social contract based upon mutual choice that protected people from the the threats to individual freedom. And so, all three of these guys, though there's many differences, and and I can look at some of them. And and, um, John Locke used to be my favorite of the Enlightenment guys. Now I think it might be Hobbes because of his just dismal picture of human nature. All three of them seem to, and and, and maybe we could throw Montesquieu in there and and whoever else you want, uh, really prioritize individual rights. And they don't seem to think of man as a social creature, except for as a matter of um, survival, that man s- somehow has to form relationships. But it's, it's almost like it's it's a necessary evil. It's, uh, it's not like God actually ordered us to grow up in an environment in which we have relationships and obligations and a community, which is how I think as a Christian, That's how we should approach those things. Um, So when we go to the ground level of this, so best case scenario, what we're looking at seems to be somewhat flawed from the get go. And maybe it was disguised at first, but we're reaping now the consequences. You you think, Timon, do you think that's a fair assessment?
2: Yeah, um... In many ways, I think so, um, and we're you know we can get into these guys that you just listed in more detail because I think they are, um, you know, rightly so. They re- they receive a lot of attention. Um, the attention they receive. So I'm meaning Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. Uh, the last one being uh, certainly one of my least favorite people ever. I just think he's a terrible person. But um, the you know Locke Locke and Hobbes in particular seem to be focused on for the American founding, more so Locke, you know, because you can find citations. Um, There's a couple issues we have, you know, even with the reception of those guys. And I think one one fault of the post-liberals, and it might be the converse fault of of the classical liberals, as they call themselves now, that Ben was pointing out, is um, an inattention to how those people may have been received by um, the, the, the founders of this country. So then if you go with the poison pill theory, that was already raised by Ben, you know, that is, we can attribute to Deneen. That's basically how he looks at it. Um, there are some historical problems there because the way we read some of these guys and what we emphasize and what secondary literature is now emphasized in them without attention to any of their own assumptions from their context um, gives you some, a very different product than maybe an 18th century Protestant in New England reading them would have had. Um, and also, you know, we we kind of assume historically because I really do think that the, the reason our approach to these things is the way it is for America's purposes is because of 20th century progressive and neoliberal historians that kind of tell you what to pay attention to, tell you what the primary streams of influence are um, on the country, and therefore what it is, and therefore where we should go. Right, all these things go go together. Um, but if you can't, you know, if you can't kind of get out of your own mindset and read them as they would have been received, and in the in sort of selective way they were read by, you know, the, the founding generation, just because you cite Vettel, Burlamanke, or, or something like that, for, some, for one thing, doesn't mean you're endorsing, you know, the entire corpus or something. Same with Locke and, and Hobbes. And then, you know, this, this sort of emphasis on the individual, in many ways, and on the on rights, has been as, as ben is highlighted as you highlighted, John. Um, I do think that is that is there. I do think um, it is an emphasis. And I do think it's also at the same time been overemphasized again by by later people who read them. For instance, I mean, I would agree with you, John, actually. If we have to pick a favorite Enlightenment guy, Hobbes is my favorite as well. Not because necessarily because he's depressing, although that's a really good trait to have. Um, but also if you read, you know, this is a curious thing about Hobbes that no one talks about the whole second half of the book is about the Christian Commonwealth.
0: Mm -hmm. So
2: to say, this is this sort of, you know, enlightenment, secular liberalism being introduced into the bloodstream of Western thought by this guy. Now there were plenty of people when, while he was still alive, that critiqued him to death. There were other people that loved him, such as John Owen. Or most of the Cromwellian parliamentarians, or you know all these people, and others who didn't for various reasons. But the you, it's very difficult to say that um, you know we don't have to get inside Hobbes' own brain and heart. It's very difficult to say though that this was not a Christian work given in a Christian society inside of Christendom. Therefore, that that changes your reading of some of these things because, for better or worse so much could be assumed and you could, you can play with ideas when they're from our perspective would be massive homogeneity. And my point in bringing that up is just, it's the same at the founding when you're 98% Protestant and like six, whatever, uh, you know, Fisher's numbers he gives us in, in a Albion seat, it's like 65% just English. And then like everyone who's not English is probably British, you know? So it's like, and, and most of the people in like, you know, New England are all from the same county and back home, you know, like, so it's just such homogeneity. You have room to play with some ideas. Now, the post-liberal critique that is good on this, so my, my point is that the poison pill thesis has problems to me, but what you can say is not enough was accounted for um, in terms of the maintenance of the society, meaning that the assumptions um of our, of our agreement of our shared our shared beliefs and, and orientations um, because those were so thick at the time, you didn't provide mechanisms for basically reproduction of those things or contr- control of them constraint. And so um, in this way, the poison pill thesis works in saying you didn't, you didn't put the right things in place to maintain uh, the necessary prerequisites for this kind of liberality, we might call it, with each other, and I think that's a fair critique. And what that, but what offends classical liberals or people like that about this critique is this is the one that begins to lead you into reconsideration of very basic structural arrangements and and things of things of this nature, which is like a no go. With you know, we're talking about Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, like growing up, it's good enough. Even today, people like Mike Lee and Ted Cruz—they're just like Constitution, Constitution, Constitution—and every our debate is over. You've and you've somehow communicated to everybody where you stand. It actually has very little content, and um, you know these things, of course, um, are are worthy of debate and consideration. Um, but then, what's required in order to talk about well, what what's what if any changes? to the way we govern ourselves or the structure we have over us should be made. Well, this requires a consideration of who and what the nation is. And because you have to think about to preserve what, for what purposes. And that's another, as we've already brought up, another conversation you're not allowed to have. Why? Because it's one of those conversations that brings in the sorts of loves and commitments that liberalism has said. These are gone because they're violent. Right. So we're just back to the same issue we had before we can make all these like we can we can try to solve for different problems that post is saying, you know, that's that's an issue but like, all right, let's try to fix it. Well, another one, you know, sort of we sort of jet off into this other issue. Um, so it is a it is a major um, multifaceted, uh, you know, sort of sort of issue uh, problem that uh, a really, really big problem that we found ourselves in and post liberals are the ones you know tugging on some of those threads. Um, not necessarily in an accelerationist fashion, um, but to to try to, you know, make a go of it, I guess you could say. And so I think I think it's needed in that way. Even um, some of the critiques they make, you know, not being as strong as others, all that notwithstanding, I think it's it's a necessary conversation to have.
0: This has been part one of our conversation on the liberal political tradition. Thank you for watching or listening. Part two is going to come out tomorrow and there will be a part three and likely a part four, possibly a part five. So stay tuned as we continue this series and talk about questions and objections and all kinds of interesting things as we continue.